You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. For a little while tonight, I want us to think on this thought. Christ is writing or dictating this letter that John pens. I want us to think on this thought. Christ to a church in a culture of corruption. It's a letter from the Lord to a people that are in a climate of compromise. And we're going to see exactly what Christ tells this church that is living in that day, in that place, and in that era where there's not just corruption around them, but there's also corruption and compromise within. Let's pray together. God, I pray for your help to preach tonight. I pray that you'd give us liberty. I also pray for understanding and clarity in the message. And I pray that you'd help us to learn about you by learning more from your word. I pray that you'd meet the need of every heart tonight, please. In Jesus' name, amen. You can see it in Genesis chapter 1. From the very beginning... God has been a God of division. God has set stark contrasts all throughout the scripture. You see, what do you mean? God divides the dry land and the sea in Genesis 1. There's a separation. And God divides night and day, light and darkness. There's a separation. There's male and female. They are distinct. In Genesis, it's a separation. They're not the same. All throughout the Bible, God sets that principle. And the same thing is true when we talk about righteousness and unrighteousness. There's an example after an example of how God does that by way of introduction. Sheep and goats, righteousness and unrighteousness. I mentioned light and darkness, righteousness and unrighteousness. There are wheat and then the tares, righteousness and unrighteousness. And God has been in the business from the beginning of calling out a people for his name that would be peculiar and set apart and distinctly his in contrast to the people and the system of the world that is around them. In fact, that's what he told us in the Gospel of John. In chapter 15 and verse 19, he says it, you are not of the world. And can I say that still holds true today, that God desires for his people to be distinctly different from the people of this world. The Bible teaches us that our God is a jealous God. He is jealous over us with that godly jealousy. And he is jealous of his children, yes, but he's also jealous of his church. That's why we must be careful to do what we can do to stay as biblically accurate and doctrinally pure as we can because this institution is not your institution. It is not my institution. It is not some conventional institution. This is God's institution. This is the pillar and ground of the truth. It is God's husbandry and God's habitation. Therefore, my opinion does not count. My preference does not hold water. It is what God wants, and that alone, that's all that flies when we talk about the church. Amen. The church is called to reach the world, but it is not called to reflect 
the world. The church is called to reach the world, but it is not called to romance the world. God wants his people and his place to be a consecrated, sanctified, separated, set apart, light that shines as a candlestick in a sin-darkened world. A long time ago, there was a man who was a faithful Christian named Athanasius, and he was trying to keep a heretical group from infiltrating Christianity. And a man said to him, don't you know that the entire world is against you? And that faithful man said, well, then I am against the entire world. That's exactly the sentiment of a Christian that loves the Lord and has fellowship with the Savior. Take the world and give me Jesus. We say the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. The church in Pergamos is in a culture of corruption. There's a climate of compromise. And I won't labor it because we spent three weeks laboring it, but can I say that's exactly the culture and the climate that we're living in today. I just saw it on my, my news feed where Florida passed legislation to now ban, thank God, to ban transgender students from using a bathroom of their choice. I want to say, duh, dummies, I'm glad there's an adult in the room in Florida, same in right there, that just made common sense. There's no way that that should be allowed anyhow. But that's our culture at large. That is normal outside the four walls of this building. In fact, they would look at you and I and call us fringe and fanatical and insane because we believe that God got it right and you are the gender that God created you and there's no changing that. I always say that you can put a suit on a monkey but it won't make him a man and you can put a dress on a man and it won't make him a woman. Say amen right there. Might make him an ugly kind of looking woman. But anyway, it, won't, it doesn't work. It's special to get a letter from somebody. When somebody writes you a letter it reminds you they care about you. They're concerned with you. And it advertises there's a relationship between the writer and the recipient of the letter. Could you imagine getting a letter to you from the Lord Jesus Christ? You say, I sure would like to get that. Well, we did get one right here at 66 books. But Christ had such interest in this church at Pergamos that he chose to dictate to them a letter. Now, the name Pergamos means a couple of things. The name Pergamos means full extent. What that means is it is something carried out to its maximum, something carried out to its fullest. But also in the name Pergamos is the name marriage. So here we find a church that is fully yoked, married, if you will, to the world. Now, Pergamos was just north of Smyrna. It's in modern-day Turkey. Something interesting about Pergamos is it exists today. It's got a different name, Pergamum, but you can travel there and see the ruins of this city that still stand even as we speak. It's a Greek settlement. In 133 B.C., this Greek settlement of Pergamus was bequeathed or given to the Roman government. So it became a Roman outpost. It's a beautiful city. It's an illustrious city. It's an educated city. But most of all, it is a godless city. It's interesting, though, 
that God never opens the door and tells these believers in Pergamos to pack up their tent and to find an easier town. Never one time does he say, you know what, it's wicked there. You ought to find you someplace that's more conservative and Christian friendly. But instead, he says, dig in your heels, get things right, and serve until you see me face to face. I like the old evangelist Sam Jones. He said, some folks want to serve God in safety. He said, I want to start a rescue mission about one yard from hell. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to serve God back where there's no bullets. I want to be on the front line for Jesus. And that's why God puts churches in peculiar places. You would drive through Silicon Valley and say, that's the last place that I'd want to start a church. Well, aren't you glad that's not what God thought? Aren't you glad that God saw fit to put us in this place of, of paganism and this place of liberalism because God wants a candlestick to shine in a dark place. At one point, this was Asia's most distinguished city. In fact, for many, many years, it was the capital city of Asia. In this city of Pergamos, and this is just foundation, we'll go through these verses in a minute. In this city in Pergamos was a library. At that time, the library rivaled the library in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. They had 200,000 Bi uh, not what's in Bibles, 200,000 books in their library. Now think about that. Those were all handwritten documents. This is a place of learning, a place of philosophy, a place of humanistic ideology, if you will. Pergamus is an elevated city. It would sit on a high bluff overlooking the valley that was beneath it. It was an emperor-worshiping city. It was the first city to erect a temple to Caesar Augustus. And they demanded that every citizen in that city bow down and worship the emperor as though he were a god. Very wealthy, very worldly, very wicked. So when we talk about these Christians, we're not talking about people that are serving on the fringe, but this church is in the heat of the battle. They are centered in the very den of the lion. I want us to see tonight what Christ has to say to this church in this culture of corruption. Now look with me at your Bible. We're going to go through the entirety of the verses here. And I want to pull some things out that we can look at and use in our generation. Now look with me in verse number 12. Christ is writing to this church. Let's see what he says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, now look at the phrase, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now you can jump down and you can see it again in verse 16. He says, repent or else I'll come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here's Christ. He's writing to a church that is in danger of compromise. They're in a very corrupt city that I'll talk about more in just a moment. He's revealing himself to this church. And he's saying to a church in an era of compromise, he's reminding them, I am still the final authority. You say, what do you mean? When he makes the statement that he has that sharp sword, that word sword was 
would ring in the heart of every Roman citizen as a symbol of absolute and total authority. He's reminding those Christians that he is still in charge, he is still in control, and he is still on the throne. The final authority is not in the library in Pergamos. The final authority is not Caesar on his throne. The final authority is not the corruption or culture of that city. The final authority, no matter who it hairlips or bothers, is the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not to drift with the current. They're not to fit with the trend. They don't mold to the hour. Their authority is higher than the throne in Rome. He's on the throne in heaven, and Jesus said, I'm the one that has that sword. It's good for churches to remember today. Our authority is not some man down the road. Our authority is not in a White House in D.C. Our authority is not a crowd of folks who bicker and blog and pick at everything we try to stand for. Our authority is the Lord. Now, I like this. He's the final authority, and the authority rests in that sword. What is that sword? Well, it's the sword of his mouth. Obviously, it's the word. What I like about the phrase is, look what he said, he which hath the sharp sword. Number one, it tells me it exists. <laughs> I'm glad it doesn't say that he used to have it or he's looking for it or he's trying to piece it together. He said, I have it right now. It is forever settled, he says. It is in existence. I can take you to it. I can quote it to you. I can declare it. You can see it. You can read it. You can hold it in your hand. Woe unto that crowd today, a culture of compromise that says they don't have a Bible. I wouldn't waste my time rolling out of bed, coming to church, putting on a necktie and smiling at strangers if I didn't think I had the Word of God. I don't care what a man has to say. I want to hear what God has to say. And I like what the Lord declares. He said, I've got it. It's all right. It's preserved. It's protected. It is here. And it's in my possession. I've got the sword. Not only does it exist, but it, ex it excels. You, what do you mean? This is a place that boasted of their books, but they had no book like his book. There was no lexicon, no dictionary, no encyclopedia, no uh, literary work, no poetic piece in, the, in that library that could compare to the word that was proceeding out of his mouth. And let me say, your science book can't compare, amen? Your Reader's Digest cannot compare. The encyclopedia cannot compare. The dictionary does not compare. The Newsweek does not compare. Nothing compares to the word of God. It excels the authorities of this world, amen? It's higher than any edict of man. It's bigger than any kind of counsel given from some group down the road. Hey, can I say the Word of God is our final authority. It excels all. I don't believe what I believe because a politician tells me to. I believe what I believe because it's in the pages of God's Word. Amen. I don't change my position because somebody changed their politics. Oh, my. I don't change my definition because somebody changed their politics. The Word of God excels it all. But then watch this. Not only does it exist and excel, it executes. You know what a sword does? It kills. It cuts. It brings judgment. And that's exactly what he told us there in the verse. When we looked at it, verse 16, he said, I'll fight. He says, what, with what? My sword. That's why it's so important, friend. We model our, our life after the Bible. We're not going to be judged on opinion. 
We're not going to be judged according to preference, but we will be judged by the very word of God. That's why, listen, it, you can split you, if you want to and cause trouble if you want to, but if it ain't Bible, then we ain't doing it. Say amen right there. And if it is Bible, don't complain about it and just obey it. Oh, my. I don't even have any notes. I preach a lot meaner without notes, don't I? All right, number one, final authority. Let's see, what, thank you. Let's see what else he says. Christ to a church in a culture of corruption, he's the final authority. But I like this. Number two, he's faithfully attentive to that church. Look at verse number two. Or sorry, verse number 13. I know thy works. I like that. I know. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. In that phrase is enough encouragement to keep those Christians then and us today serving God until we see Jesus face to face. We sing it all the time. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. I'm glad he knows. I'm glad he's not disengaged. Amen. He's very aware. And he's telling these Christians there, he said, I see what's going on. Several things. I know he's attentive to their activity. He said, I know thy works. He said, I see everything that you do. When you go out and witness for me and you pray and you stand and you serve, I see it all. Can I say it's worth it? We serve for an audience of one. We don't serve for the applause of the crowd. We serve for a well done one day at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't care if you serve in the shadows, teach a Sunday school class of five, work a bus route on Saturday, or stand in a pulpit and preach to hundreds. Everything we do, we got to do it for God. And can I say he keeps record? He keeps score. He said, I see it there as you're active, your intent, the extent of your labor. But then he said this, not only do I see your activity, I see the atmosphere that you serve in. See what he says? Even where Satan's seat is. And then it told us a little bit down further in verse number uh, 13, where Satan dwelleth. I don't know of a city that could have been any more wicked than Pergamus was. Pergamus was a polytheistic pagan place. They were not anti-faith in Christ. They were anti-exclusive faith in Christ. They would have been fine had that crowd put Jesus on their religious mantle or altar with every other little demigod, little false god that they created. But the audacity for a man or woman to say, no, it's Christ and Christ alone, boy, that ticked them off. Because in that city, they worshipped a multiplicity of gods. They had an altar to Athena. They had an altar to Zeus. They had an altar to Caesar. They had, an, uh, they had a temple to this god called Asclepius. That's a weird one there. The god of healing. And everybody from all over the empire would come to that temple to be healed by this priest with divine healing powers. His symbol was a snake. And his temple was filled with snakes. And you'd go in there, sleep, and those snakes would crawl on you through the night. And if the snake crawled over you, then your healing would be enacted. That sounds good, doesn't it? The symbol, by the way, for that false god is a rod with two snakes intertwined going up. Like you see on your ambulances as they drive down the road. That's the same, exact same symbol. There was an altar there 90 feet long, I think 40 feet tall, something like that, to Zeus. And if you go to Berlin now, you can see it's called the Freeze. Hitler took it. They put it over there in Germany. But it shows, it depicts a battle between the gods and the giants. And that would be multiple steps going up on that altar. And they would burn sacrifices to Zeus all day long. Don't forget this. There's no such thing as Zeus. 
So that's an altar to who? Satan. When it says Satan's seat, it's saying Satan's throne. Also in this town was that big brass bull that they supposedly martyred Antipas in. I like Antipas. You know what his name is? Against everything, basically. They took that Christian, that preacher, and they put him inside of that brass bull, so the legend says, and they roasted him alive in that brass bull. Then they had that temple where he had to bow down and pray to Caesar as though he's a god. But I like what the Lord said. He said, I know all about that. I know you're serving in a place where they're power hungry. I know you're serving in a place where they're perverted. I know you're serving in a place where they worship what they know not. I know you're serving in a place that is culturally anti-faith in God alone. He said, but I'm well aware of that. And let that encourage us tonight because our God has not changed. If you ever feel that you're serving in a place like that, hallelujah anyhow, because the Lord knows all about it. He knows your activity. He knows the atmosphere. But I like this. He knows the ardency of those Christians. Ardency. You know what that means? Their steadfastness. They're hard uh, against compromise. Some of them in that church would not bow and would not bend. That man named Antipas was holding fast and died for his faith. Look what it says about these Christians. Several things. They held fast. See what it says? Hold fast my name. That's Christ's deity. They wouldn't let anybody take his deity from him. They wouldn't let anybody say Jesus was just another man. They said, no, we're going to lift his name up. We're going to make sure he gets all the glory that is due unto his name. The immutability of that name, the eternality of that name, the deity and dignity and the dominion of that name. We're not going to bring him down to the level of a Caesar. He's much bigger than that. We're not going to sell out. Can I, I saw a preacher the other day put out a post on his Facebook, and, and he's a Baptist preacher, and I don't think he even meant to do it. I just don't think he was smart enough to word his statement. But he made the statement that Jesus was the greatest creation of God. That is blasphemous. He is not a creation of God. He is God, my Mormon friend. The same in right there. He's always been God, always will be God. And those Christians in that day said, you might muddy our name, but you'll not cast shade on that name. That name's above every name. They held fast to that name. And then they also didn't deny his faith. That's his doctrine. They didn't bend or give an inch on any doctrine. No. Not even a hint of it. No, 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 no Calvinism. No, none of it, none of it. No saying that the atonement is limited to some. Can't come in here, we're holding fast to whosoever will, right? No baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that. No, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Not the water, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not coming in here, right? The infallibility of God's inspired and preserved word. Oh, you're not bringing that... Critical stuff in here. Not coming in here. We believe it's the word of God. The visible return, the victorious resurrection, all of these things, they're not going to give an inch on it. Watch this. He said, I am the final authority. I am faithfully attentive. Number three, we've got to hurry. He said, I am furious with apostasy. Look what it says in verse 14 through 16. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them. I circled that word them. You know why? Because it's not the same as the word thee. Thee ain't them and them ain't thee. You know what he's doing? He's distinguishing his people from these heretics. 
He said, you have them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So as thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And he says, repent or else I'll come unto thee quickly and will fight against them. Not thee, but fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I like that tag, them and thee. Sometimes if we're not careful, we say, well, they're a real nice guy. Yeah, they're a real nice guy who's on the wrong team. Amen. We're not to bid them Godspeed, right? They went out from us because they were not of us. When somebody preaches a heretical doctrine, if they're confronted about it and refuse to get it right, then we ought not have anything to do with that person. Amen. That's a them, not a thee. He makes the tag, but then watch this. He said, I don't like those who tolerate it. Because he said, you have those in your church that are holding this doctrine of spiritual immorality. Yoking up and compromising with the world. He said, I got a little bit against you because you're putting up with that stuff. I don't know what it is if people are scared over, over causing a church split and I understand that. Or if they just want to lose ties, I understand that. But when they won't deal with that, can I say that is like not dealing with a, with a cancer that could be cured and letting it metastasize till it kills you. He said, you ought not tolerate it. You ought not take part in it, number three. Have nothing to do with it. Let me give you this last one we'll be through. Christ to a church in a culture of compromise. He's the final authority. Still yet, he's our authority. Amen. Doesn't matter what any other church does. That's why social media is so detrimental because we're so connected. That we get pressured because of the perception. And camera angles are great things. And it makes places look like they're really successful until you go there in person and see the five people in the pew. But you feel the pressure and the heat from that because the perception is so easy to make it magnified and look like it's something when it's nothing. And because of that, we bend, we bow, and we think, I've got to have that because they have that. If I don't do this, they won't like me. You poor thing. Oh, my soul. That's not my authority. This is. All right, faithfully attentive. Number three, these fierce with apostasy. And then watch this. I like this one. Christ to a church in a climate of compromise or corruption, he'll favor the, the abiding, the, those who will abide with him. Look at verse 17. He's got some good promises for us. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Watch this. To him that overcometh. That word overcometh does not mean you did not have trouble. Doesn't mean that you did not have adversity. Doesn't mean that you did not have an enemy to fight. It means that you were victorious in the battle. I think sometimes Christians want tranquility, not triumph. And that's why we're so apt to compromise, because we'd rather keep the peace than prevail over an enemy. He said, but this promise is for those who will fight the fight. This is for those who will get in the battle and overcome the adversary. He said, I'm going to give them a few things. He said, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saveth he that receiveth it. So there's three parts here, three promises to some people that will be faithful in a day of compromise. Number one, he said, I'll give you some refreshment. Number two, I'll give you a rock. And then number three, I'm going to 
to give you a revelation. First, he said, I'll give you a refreshment. You see, what is it? He says, hidden manna. Isn't that interesting? You know the Old Testament story. Manna is the provision of God that fell down for the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. You know what manna is? It is pilgrim food. It is food for the soul sojourner. It is special provision that comes to the one who's just passing through. And he said, since you took your stand against the world and have chosen to live as though this world is not your home, you're just a passing through. I'm going to give you some good things from my table, some nourishment from my hand that that compromising crowd doesn't know anything about. There is something better to feast on than popularity or praise in this world. That sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting down at his table, letting him gird himself and feed you with heavenly manna. That's what he promises. If you'll stand and stay faithful and not compromise with this world. So he said, I'll give you stranger food, special food. But then he said, I'll give you a rock. Specifically, he says, a white stone. There's so much preaching in that that you could just preach a message on that. But since it's a Bible study, we'll just give you what I think it is. A white stone speaks of several things and would have been even more meaningful to these people in that period. In the Roman court system, it is flipped from the American justice system, though we borrow a lot of our legal system from Rome. In that, I mean this. In America, I don't even know if I can say this and it be true, but we say that it is. You are innocent until proven guilty. Everybody ought to say amen right there, because one of these days you might wish that we would. Say amen right there. Innocent till proven guilty. But in the Roman court system, you were guilty until proven innocent. In fact, I read some historians, they would say that sometimes they would even tattoo a mark on those men that were to stand trial before they stood their trial. So the rest of their life, they would bear the mark of a criminal before they even stood trial. So they take that fellow there into the court, already being condemned as he walks in. Everybody in that room looks at him as though he's already done the deed, even if he hadn't. He's guilty just because he's there. And the way that they would do this is, after the hearing, they would give every juror stones, a white stone and a black stone. And then each juror would walk up to an urn in front of the court and drop in his stone. And whatever stone he dropped in, they would count it at the end. As they looked through those stones, the judge would begin to count one black one, two black ones, one white one, another white one. And at the end, black stones prevailing meant that man is guilty. And a white stone prevailing meant that man is set free. He is not condemned. And if that man got that white stone, it was as though he got that freedom on his life. At liberty, he was set free. Here's what the Lord is saying. He said, you'll not have the condemnation of compromise on you. If you'll stand fast, I'll look on you. You'll be set free from this. But I like this that man, as he would leave, he'd have that mark. So that judge might take that white stone and put his own insignia on the stone. And the rest of his life, that fellow could carry on that white stone with the judge's mark on it. And remind the world, no, I've been set free and here's the judge that did it. <laughs> There's another thing about that white stone. It speaks of verdict. It also speaks of victory. Because in the games, similar like the Olympian games, they would give the winner of the race a white stone. And for the rest of their life, they'd walk around with that white stone. Everything would be paid in full for them. They wouldn't have to buy anything. 
the government took care of it all. Amen. It was on Caesar's bill now. Same thing for you and I. We have that assurance in Christ. It's paid in full. Everything that is his is ours. Everything in the government of God is yours and it's mine. But also it didn't just speak. It didn't just speak of those things. Let me give you this. That rock, there's a name on it. So here's the revelation. On that stone is written a name. You say, what's the name? I don't know because the Bible says no man knoweth. If I were to tell you what it was, then you'd know I was lying to you. So I don't know what's on there. There's a couple things that could be on there. I think it speaks of a closeness and I think it speaks of a covenant. I think it speaks of a closeness in a couple of ways. Number one, it could be the name of the overcomer. There's a distinction in the Bible when God gives someone a new name. It's an elevated relationship status. Jacob, Israel. Abram, Abraham. It could be a name of the overcomer, a new name. I don't know. Or it could be the name of the one who gave him the stone that only those who received the stone really get to know. And it speaks of an intimate, deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because you stayed faithful to him. But not only does it speak of a closeness, that covenant, this is an interesting, you've probably heard preachers preach on this one before. But in those days, they would use those stones as a token of covenant with people. When a stranger would come to town and having need, he would go into a man's house and that man would provide for him. And then they would take a stone and that stone would be broken in two perfectly matched halves. Each individual in that party would write their name on their half and then exchange it. So that the man who provided would have the name of the one he provided for on his stone. And the man who was provided for would have the name of the provider on his stone. Time and distance may separate them. But even after many years, if that man came to his home, or even his children or grandchildren and had that stone, they could match it with the other man's stone. And it was a binding contract that since you were good to me then, I'm going to be good to you now. Since you showed me kindness over there, I'm going to show you kindness over here. And I think Christ is trying to tell us as Christians, if you'll love my name now, it can't compare to how I'm going to love on you when you get over here. And if you'll be faithful to me, you just can't, it can't compare to the faithfulness you're going to experience of mine when you see me face to face. The last three weeks I, I was a little different. I wanted just to give you a Bible study in the church at Pergamos. The church wrapped in corruption. That's where we're at today. And that whole, a culture of compromise. But Jesus is still our final authority. Not this world. He's still faithfully attentive to, our, to us. He knows all about everything that's going on. Good and bad, he knows. He's furious with apostasy. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't laugh at it. It's not cute to him. He hates it, it says. But I'm glad he favors those who abide with him. And if you want that deeper relationship with God, you just stay faithful. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.